Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today we're looking at how local energy solutions can be used for new housing and wider new build and regeneration projects. Can clever software optimize demand, storage, and generation to make these developments more energy independent? If possible, then these developments will still have a grid connection, but will be less reliant on the overall grid and could even operate independently from the grid should the grid go down. How are these types of developments growing across Europe? What are the business models and commercial arrangements for these projects? Well, this is what we're going to explore today. So I'm delighted to welcome two guests who are at the leading edge of these developments and are Delta EE expert on the topic. Let's say hello. First, Philip Gladek, founder and CEO at Spectral, based in the Netherlands. Hello, Philip. Hello, and thanks for hosting. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Philip, can you give us a, a very quick elevator pitch for Spectral to help our guests understand who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, so Spectral is a system integration company specialized in energy management and control systems. And we have a few key application areas that we focus on uh, being smart buildings uh, and real estate, um, grid infrastructure, meaning uh, integrated electrical and thermal networks, and also uh, large scale uh, renewable production systems and storage. So uh, wind, solar and and large scale batteries are our uh, core areas. Okay, so you're mainly your your core strength is that software and optimization of energy. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, can you give us an example of a project along the lines of my introduction, where you're optimizing demand in a new development or demand generation and storage? Sure. So I think uh, one project that particularly well connects to the theme of today's podcast is. A development in uh, the north of Amsterdam, uh, which is uh, currently under construction, called Republica. And uh, Spectral is responsible for development of the integrated electrical and thermal energy systems within this site, uh, which features a private microgrid with just one connection to the public grid network. Uh, and it consists of about 20,000 square meters of new build uh, across uh, six buildings, uh, several apartment buildings, uh, office spaces, restaurants, uh, leisure. So a sort of you know mini uh, city on a, on a plot. Uh, and underneath it all, a large uh, parking structure, which will have about 50 electric vehicle charging points, um, a big uh, community battery of 1.2 megawatt hours, as well as uh, large uh, heat pumps with thermal storage, uh, which will supply hot and cold to all the buildings uh, in the uh, yeah, in the plot. Sounds like some development. And your role then is optimizing the electrical demand and electrical flows behind that single point of connection. Exactly. So optimizing the control of all the different assets to be able to uh, deliver local uh, energy services and manage also peak demand as well as to help balance the national and European grid network, uh, utilizing the flexibility of those assets, uh, all the while, of course, ensuring that um, the efficiency of the operation is is also maximized. Great. Well, we'll come back to that shortly, Philip. Uh, Let's say hello to our second guest, Dan Nichols, who's Managing Director at Synergy, uh, SNRG, based in the UK. Hello, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. 
thanks for joining. Uh, likewise, Dan, can you give us an elevator pitch for Synergy, who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. So Synergy is a Centrica-backed smart energy solutions business. And our focus, um, similar to Philips, is really about decarbonizing new buildings with a real focus on new homes through technologies like smart microgrids, which which are really based on trying to reduce complexity and reduce cost around a decarbonization journey for new homes. And um, we call our product a, a, a Synergy Smart Grid. And as, as Philip described, uh, it's really based on the idea of um, having a single point of connection to the network, connecting all the demand and generation loads together behind that network connection point and using clever optimization technologies um, and things like battery storage to really minimize the demand and the cost um, on the network and also the cost and complexity for consumers. Okay, so quite similar theme to what Philip described. Um, And real life example or example of what you're developing? Yes, so we have a project which is um, being occupied as we speak uh, in a place called uh, Corby, and that's uh, a scheme of 16 apartments, all connected behind a single boundary meter, and that project has a single communal battery, has a single communal PV system, and uh, as I described, we have our our software platform that um, thinks through the deployment of the PV, of the battery, the management of the loads, such that um, consumers get the, the the cheapest deal ultimately and don't have to worry about the complexity of, uh, of doing that themselves. Okay, thanks a lot, Dan. Likewise, we'll come back and learn a bit more about that project shortly. Um, third and final guest is my Delta EE colleague, Jeremy Harrison. Hello, Jeremy. Morning, John. Uh, Jeremy, let's frame the topic a little bit more. So, um, the if we look at new a new development, it could be new housing development, the type that Philip described. Uh, the developer will typically have to get a connection with the local distribution network company. Um, now, the precise way that's paid for changes from country to country according to the regulations, um, but there'll be a like a one-time cost associated with that connection, and that cost sometimes is paid by the developer sometimes might be socialized but there's still a cost with that connection why is that becoming a bigger and bigger issue at the moment across europe or why do you see this becoming more a more and more important area well it's always been quite an issue in terms of getting connections to developers um, because you need to synchronize the the build out of the distribution network with the the planning and development of the, the housing development itself um, so in some areas where the grid's constrained, it can be quite challenging to get a, a, a timely connection. Um, but in the past, those connections were sized based on the assumption that the homes typically would have gas central heating. So that the only electrical demand would be things like you know, cooking and lighting and so on. And the DNO would normally assume a, a demand around peak diversified demand around two kilowatts. Now, as you mentioned right at the beginning, we're seeing electrification of heat with heat pumps and mobility with electric vehicle charging, and those are significantly bigger loads. Um, And the problem is that we have a lot of experience with gas-heated homes and that kind of normal everyday electrical consumption, but there's an order of magnitude greater demand from these new loads, and there's no experience of having 
both the heat pump and electric vehicle charging and all the, the normal electrical loads on a scale that will give the DNO the kind of confidence to size the network accordingly. So they avoiding risk, they will tend to oversize the connection to make sure it doesn't fall over. And that, of course, that might, imposes costs. Yeah, and that might be difficult if the grids are getting more and more congested as we get more and more electrification. Yeah, They could turn around and say, well, we don't have capacity for this development or we're going to have to build a bigger grid in this area and you're going to need to wait for that or someone will need to pay for that in some way. Exactly, yes. Uh, Indeed, and maybe just to interject... Uh, the capacity problem in the Netherlands is becoming quite significant. In fact, many projects are simply unable to get a grid connection in certain areas, and that has to do both with uh, projects uh, that need to import energy uh, as well as renewable plants that need to export. So the grid operators are looking uh, at all kinds of solutions to resolve this problem because placing uh, the traditional solution of upgrading the cables and the infrastructure uh, is simply not cutting it and can't move fast enough to cope with the uh, magnitude of the problem. Was that the driver behind the Project Republica you described just north of Amsterdam, Philip? Uh, initially, it wasn't per se uh, the the biggest driver. Um, the, the biggest driver, at least from also the developer or client's perspective, uh, was uh, yeah to create a highly sustainable and innovative uh, site. Uh, it's really a showcase for them as well. Uh, mm -hmm. and to help push the boundaries of um, new regulatory uh, and industry structures and, and uh, demonstrate uh, the smart grid technology in, in practice. However, um, during the course of the development, actually the area in which the project is in Amsterdam North uh, has uh, now experienced congestion. Uh, and in fact, the project uh, is uh, not able to uh, obtain the full amount of capacity that's needed if, uh, you know, if, the, if mm. it was just available. Um, so we are actually working also with the grid operator on uh, new creative solutions to uh, couple our smart grid systems with their substation automation systems or other kind of, um, let's say, more contract uh, implicit flexibility uh, mechanisms to ensure that um, we can actually realize the project and go into full operation while at the same time, um, yeah, uh, taking into consideration the actual uh, peak load and the, and the congestion yeah. within the local grid network. That's really interesting because I think a demonstration project is great and we need demonstration projects to push the boundaries and move us forward in the energy transition, but they're one-off things by their nature. What you described there is a real hard commercial driver that uh, could see more and more need for the types of approaches that you're you're talking about certainly and, and maybe just to add i mean we were of course uh, going to anyways implicitly limit our peak demand on the grid because the grid operators demand charges are already based on for example how much capacity you've contracted but also the measured yep. peak demand so it was part of the business case for us to do that anyway but now it becomes a much more critical aspect of the project uh, where uh, the grid operator is actually going to rely on us to take action and help reduce load so that the uh, infrastructure in the area uh, is able to actually provide energy to the rest of all of the uh, residents and uh, businesses that are there. Dan, how about yourself? How, how, how would you characterize your project? Is it uh, ahead of its time or are there really strong uh, drivers in terms of getting sufficient grid connection? or sufficient grid connection capacity for new housing developments? Well, what I think Philip's describing really resonates with us. And 
whilst I talk to some specific examples, we sort of set up to 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 deliver a solution that 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 runs out across the industry as a as a standard. Uh, you know, alternative way of uh, connecting and servicing new homes. We, we don't see this as a necessarily an R and D exercise. We, we're really keen to get out there and solve some of these problems. And really, just to add some colour to to Jeremy's point around kind of how this how this issue has arisen. You know, we're obviously seeing the numbers around KVA per home. This is the kind of key numbers we're talking around. Or uh, and with a with the dual fuel of kind of standard today home it's about we're talking about two kva and, but as we move into a more decarbonized scenario which based on in particular uk legislation is highly likely to be predominantly all electric that means we we're electrifying our heating and importantly we're electrifying transport so we, we we're likely to see you know that two kva increase significantly if you stack all those loads without a diversification then you could be looking at something like 15 kva so very big jump of course across housing developments you can you can factor in the fact that people aren't doing everything at the same time which allows you to to reduce that peak but still it it's an order of magnitude it's still a significant increase in terms of the demand the pressure that's that's put on the network and and then obviously the network operators need to plan for that and i think that's where this this kind of key additional cost is arising Okay, so real key driver to limit that maximum demand from new developments. Um, I want to ask first about technically how hard it is to do what you're both doing and then look at a bit more on the commercial model and what this looks like from the customer's point of view. So let's spend a few minutes uh, looking at the technical side. Um, how yeah, how how difficult is it, or what's involved, or can you give our listeners a feel for uh, these optimization systems that you've developed? Who'd like to go first? Yeah, so uh, jumping in, happy to kind of pick up the thread and, and then pass to Philip. But um, perhaps to continue where, where where I was with the kind of explanation, to, or to give you an example, and then and then go into the how we're working with a with a developer on a project in in Gloucester and um that project has been quoted upwards of 12 million pounds to upgrade the network over and above a threshold of about 3 MVA which is um to try and characterize the, the, the those um those figures that's that they would normally expect to have to go above that level to service a scheme of this size um but the additional cost at that point is uh, it's a significant barrier for them. And so we've, we've come up with a solution based on our smart microgrids that we think can deliver the whole scheme under that threshold. So in terms of the previous question, there's, there's a potential significant, you know, material advantage to delivering these solutions for new housing. You, you know, you avoid that cost, which goes to the land value. And of course you avoid any other costs which might get socialized across the, uh, across the system. Um, so, so how, how we do it in, in this scenario, it, it, it's the, the key thing here is being able to place a single boundary meter on the system and then coordinate all of the assets, the load, the generation, the storage behind that meter. And that coordination, you see, you're proactively then um, taking steps to ensure that that peak load is is diversified down to its lowest level. And, and you can do that with our concept. We do that with 
a, a single large battery storage system that is is charged charging from any generation connected to the microgrid, ensuring that generation, typically on a housing development, we're talking about solar PV, is ensuring that, that PV is all used on the system rather than exported back to the grid. Listeners will get the, the battery and the PV part, but are you also then optimising the timing of the electric heating operation, the timing of the electric vehicle charging? Um, so how many different points are you optimising? Uh, in addition to the battery? Because the battery is fairly easy to imagine how you do that. How wide are you going? Yeah, exactly. I guess the battery is the simplest use case in this scenario. But what the ecosystem does, it kind of gives us the opportunity to, as you say, manage manage those other loads, in particular those which can be sacrificed. And uh, 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 that includes EV charging, and that includes hot water heating. And, and under some circumstances, that can include heating as well. So as a minimum, those are the, the, the loads that we're looking to, to, to coordinate. And, and what's kind of really key here is we can do that in a way which works with the consumer. We, could, we can operate as a service provider. So let me give you the EV example. You, you need, and again, very simply, you, you need to use your car um, at, at, at seven o'clock in the morning to go to work. You, you might also want to make sure your car has always got enough capacity for your emergency trips. But beyond that, once you've plugged it in at home, you're not too worried about how you get to that point. So what Synergy can do with its optimization capabilities is ensure you get that service. But in the background, make sure we're not stacking all the EV charging together. Make sure that if there's a, a, a peak loading issue on the on the smart grid, that we we perhaps turn down or turn off the charging for short periods of time during that duration. So, so really it's about allowing us to to um, coordinate those those assets, but but importantly, do so in a way which doesn't penalise the consumer. And I think that's a really important part in this debate is, is how do we manage these issues? Do we do it with the consumer or do we do it from a purely system-only perspective? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's come to the model in a minute. Philip, I just want to hear your views on the complexity. So um, can you help our listeners understand the where your software sits is this like a, a local control system is it taken how long has it taken you to develop what are the bits you're really proud of that you're from a technical point of view uh certainly i can elaborate so uh from a technical perspective uh certainly what we do is extremely complex but also that's where we excel so actually the technical part is the the fun part which uh uh, comes easily to our team uh, and and yeah and indeed some of the the challenges uh, lie in regulatory or financial aspects but I'll, I'll elaborate on that later but zooming in on the uh, technical parts so the system uh, locally consists of uh, some edge devices that are actually uh, integrated with uh, the uh, SCADA systems of specific assets like the the large community battery or, or the uh, heat pumps um, those are connected to a central microgrid controller, which is kind of the brains of the local operation, uh, orchestrating and making decisions uh, on which assets to uh, turn on or off or ramp down or up um, for uh managing of that local peak demand and making sure that we uh, keep the local network in balance. Um, and then on the... Um, cloud side so uh, we also have uh, uh, intelligence running with forecasts and uh, also that's where also users log in to see 
their data and have the uh, the interfacing for the system. All the financial administration functions uh, are running there. So it's actually a sort of th three-layered system. Um, and also um, what we do is actually we uh, combine a number of different functions into a stacked energy service approach. So first and foremost, the highest priority is we need to make sure that the peak demand in the area is managed and that the congestion in the grid yeah. uh, is um, relieved. So that's a priority number one. Um, then things like making sure that uh, so locally we also uh, optimize self-consumption. So indeed, uh, as Dan said, uh, limit the export of PV and, and keep it consumed locally within the grid. And there's also a, a yeah, small financial upside. Um, and managing the state of charge of the battery is also quite essential to make sure it stays within the, the correct bandwidth. On top of all of that, we also provide balancing services to the national network, to the transmission system op operator. So using the battery, for example, we're able to provide frequency containment reserves to help uh, keep the frequency of the network at 50 hertz. And uh, additionally, we can stack secondary commercial trading functions um, uh, to, for example, uh, perform energy arbitrage, uh, selling energy on the day ahead or intraday markets, uh, or um, yeah, if there's an interesting uh, price uh, deviation, that can be another way which the business case uh, is improved. So all of these actually functions are running simultaneously and the prioritization there is maintained. And for example, when we know that there's going to be a peak demand in the evening hours when everyone's coming home, plugging in their cars, turning on the heating, for those hours, we also don't bid uh, some of the flexibility, for example, from the battery into the markets to make yeah, sure that you need retain... To... You need um, to say you need to save that in reserve. Uh, you've got a, you're, so you're balancing lots of different things against each other with a hierarchy. Um, Jeremy, how technically, when you look across Europe, how is this a technical challenge? Would you say, or while it may be very hard and there's lots of clever work going on, fundamentally the technology is is doable and it's not. We don't need real technology breakthroughs to do this. I think that the last point, absolutely, we don't need technology breakthroughs. The technologies all exist. In fact, I was talking to a microgrid company just yesterday, and they were saying that actually building microgrids is not that technically complicated. But what is complicated is scaling it to this level where um, really the, your two companies are um, providing almost like an intermediary service. So the, the network operator is not used to this level of sophistication at low voltage levels. Basically, everything below the 11 kV transformers is done. Um, uh, and similarly, for the developer, housing developers have no experience or understanding of these kind of very complex optimization systems. I mean, they're struggling to even install PV systems with batteries and EV charging. So it's not a real technical problem in absolute terms, but for the participants, it is. For the DNO, it's, it's not uh, common at this level, and for the developer. So for a company like Dan's to come along and say, look, we'll do a package for you. We will provide you with the technology, the heat pump, everything, and integrate and optimize it. That is a really valuable service in facilitating this transition. Okay, so let's look at it now from the householder or the building owner perspective. Um, Philip, what would a someone moving into this new development uh, in Amsterdam would they be aware of what you're doing? Would they be paying you for what you're doing? Or would they just have their normal arrangement with an energy retailer and somehow in the background you're optimizing 
when they're charging their electric car, for example? Good question. Um, so in this particular project I was uh, describing, Republica, um, we need to engage uh, the residents, the business owners in the area, uh, because they also, um, while the grid, uh, it, it, the physical infrastructure, they don't really have a choice to opt out because, mm -hmm. well, <laughs> there's just yeah. one grid there and they yeah. need to be connected. Um, so for that part, um, you know, who, regardless of who moves in, they're, they're you know, uh, a member uh, of the cooperative for their um, grid connectivity. But for energy supply, especially on the electricity side, they do have a freedom of choice, which is also uh, mandated by the European law. Now, there's quite some benefits if they join the Republica Cooperative, which is the entity that's been set up to actually exploit the, uh, the smart grid and the energy systems, because they can then charge their cars at a fraction of the cost as you know what they would yeah. uh, if they were uh, just charging with the public grid. Um, and they also uh, get access, of course, to the, the technology where um, they actually log in. We, we always build a 3D digital twin model of all of our smart grid projects. So they can actually see in real time what's happening in the grid with the battery system, with the EVs. All of that is uh, integrated and, um, uh, yeah, make but they, made they transparent towards the end user. They don't have to do that. They're, there's no obligation for them to look in that detail. They could just say, Republicans giving me a cheaper deal than I could get elsewhere. Sign up to that. Know that their electric vehicle charging is going to be optimized and sure. off they go. Certainly, uh, although we, you know, to uh, get everyone to join the cooperative, there is some uh, a degree of communication and education to explain to people what are the benefits. So during that process, they learn about, you know, what's actually happening. But certainly, not everyone is logging in and checking, right? Uh, yeah. The energy flows, and it's it's that maybe percentage of, uh, you know, uh, technical uh, people who are interested in, uh, uh, you know, or maybe show it off once in a while to yeah. uh, their friends in a bar. But uh, yeah, that's the extent. Uh, to which the consumer is really uh, involved in, in the operation of the systems. D Dan, how about you? If someone moves into one of the houses in the Stroud or Gloucester developments, uh, what do they experience? How do, how do they buy energy? Do they have a contract with you? How does it work? It's really similar to the way that Philip described it, really. And, and I suppose one of the benefits here, it's, it's, it's really simple for for residents, notwithstanding the initial kind of welcome and onboarding that this is a slightly different model to normal, you can be a very passive um, participant as a as a household on a, on a microgrid like this, and I think that's potentially a real upside, real opportunity because as we as we kind of electrify, decarbonize, increase the intelligence of the systems in our homes, what we're doing is making life more complicated for the consumer. So you know you've got a you might have a battery. You might have a smart hot water tank. You might have a smart heating system. You've got a supplier. You might have an aggregator. You've got a DNO, maybe an IDNO to use all the acronyms in the book. But ultimately, what, what I'm saying is in a smart home, you might have four or five different points of contact you need to make um, and different contracts that you need to sign. And, and of course, the, the holy grail is to combine all of that and make it really easy for, for residents. And, and that's what these microgrids offer. You you you, you come in on day one. You, you know that, that the... That Synergy is working behind the scenes to make sure that you are not paying anything more than you need to pay for any of your energy services. And you don't need to worry about if anything goes wrong, there's one point of contact, you know, one phone number and so on. So from a, and of course, what I didn't say at the outset is that, is that the system is fully funded. So as a consumer, the real aim here is to make life simple. 
of, of course, as with Philips schemes, if you wish to take your supply from someone else, you can. But the real benefit here is is in taking the supply from the microgrid so you can access all of those benefits I just talked about. So, Jeremy, are we, are we effectively seeing mini vertically integrated utilities then that are um, owning the network, the microgrid, they're operating it, and they're acting as the competitive energy retailer? Yeah, well, it's an interesting take, isn't it, that when we um, liberalise the, the market, the energy market, it was um, yeah, separation, horizontal separation. Um, but actually, when you want to optimise systems, having this vertical integration really does make sense um, because you can optimise the whole, uh, you know, every component, of every asset within it. And I think one of the, the things that's just been touched on about the cost um, is not just that it is cost effective uh, from day one, it's the fact that you have more stability. We've already seen very recently the dramatic increase in uh, wholesale uh, cost of electricity due to the, the gas shortages. Um, and when you have a self-contained microgrid, uh, to the largest extent you can um, uh, produce your own electricity means you have that long-term stability. You're not buying it from the market, you're buying it from yourselves. So there are a lot of opportunities there for energy communities to invest in their future you know, in low-carbon electricity supply, which is also um, going, going to give them long-term price stability. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating point. Um, and I think there's a lot more to unpick on the, the business models around this, the financial investment, the how you get the return on that financial investment that we haven't talked about today. But time flies on these podcasts. So uh, let's now bring out the talking new energy crystal ball. And I'm going to set the time frame this week to 2030. And my question to each of you, uh, how widespread will be will these kind of developments be by 2030? And you can express your answers in any way you want, percentage, number, whatever metric you want to use. Uh, I imagine, Philip and Dan, you'll want to do it for your own country. Jeremy, choose how you want to, to answer the question. So how widespread will they be? And very, very quickly, uh, in about 20 seconds, the biggest challenge in reaching that. Uh, so uh, short and sharp, please. But let's start with Philip. Um, how widespread by 2030 and biggest challenge to get there? Uh, certainly. Uh, I think if you talk about smart grids in the more general sense, that an integrated thermal electrical systems, certainly more than 50%, I would say. Um, private grids in the Netherlands is actually something that probably won't uh, be happening more broadly because the Dutch government actually has decided they don't want to allow um, uh, yeah, uh, private grids in the residential context uh, for, yeah, uh, to keep it in the regulated domain. Uh, but certainly smart grids will be scaling up and they need to uh, because otherwise we will not be able to support the amount of renewables uh, and the higher penetration. And the biggest barriers there uh, to scaling, I think, are in fact on the regulatory side, but also on the governance and organizational side, getting everyone on the same page, uh, also financing the projects that have some inherent risk due to, let's say, fluctuation of market prices. So those are really the, the biggest barriers in my view. Okay, thanks, Philip. Uh, Dan, how about you? So I'm gonna, so I'm gonna plump for um, so anything between twenty five percent and forty five percent for smart grids in the UK, and and the reason why I pulled those numbers out, they're not pulled out of the air exactly, but they really represent where 
this this sort of sweet spot is in the construction sector or in the house building sector in the UK for these types of systems. Ultimately, um, on sites over sort of 10-ish homes. Um, and if that's, let's say for the next 10 years, that's roughly, give or take, a million homes that get built in on those sort of sites. I think that's potentially thousand pounds, thousands of pounds worth of, or millions of pounds worth of, of grid reinforcement costs. And obviously, you know, higher bills for consumers. And ultimately, from my perspective, you know, notwithstanding the challenges and the regulations and so on, you know, why would we build that number of homes um, at, we, through we a want model to build which them incurs in a... additional costs ultimately? So that's yeah, why true. I pitched that. And, and a big challenge, I think. I think Jeremy touched on it earlier. For me, it's it's really about the fact that what we're trying to do here is 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 work at the interface of of um, transport transition, of energy transition, and of course construction transition. And I think trying to solve a problem for all three sectors is really where the the challenges lie, but also where so the opportunity a... lies. And it's something I think we need to see more more joining up around all, all three of those sectors being seen as a single policy. Um, yeah, area. I guess that echoes the the coordination point that uh, that Philip made. It's a lot of parties to coordinate together, a lot of factors to coordinate together. Jeremy, last but not least. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to turn uh, Dan's challenges into an opportunity. Um, because I think that he's absolutely right that it is uh, a, an innovation to have to um, provide this service. But I think because of that, there's a huge opportunity. And as we see electrification of heat and mobility, um, somebody's got to come up with a solution to it. And it's unlikely to be the housing developers. It's not their core business. Um, so I think that companies like uh, these two will be really instrumental in making that transition. Um, and you know, if the developer can outsource this challenge to somebody else then you know they are likely to go for that um and in terms of the the numbers i, I think i would agree that there are people who say you know 50 by 2050 um it's just a matter of how much of a challenge this does represent when uh, we get uh, higher levels of electrification in the new build housing market which is going to happen in the next few years well as you said jeremy one person's challenge is another person's opportunity um Philip and Dan, it looks like you're uh, doing some fantastic work at the the leading edge and um, wishing you the best of luck in the projects you mentioned, but ultimately in, in scaling these as quick as you can over the next years. Thank you, John and uh, Jeremy and Dan. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Well, thanks, Philip. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Likewise. Likewise. And... Thank Jeremy, you. thanks for your expert appearance again on our podcast. Thanks, John. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. We hope that you found that an interesting episode, particularly if you're in Corby, Gloucester or North Amsterdam, the three locations we talked about. Um, and look forward to welcoming you back to our next episode next week. Thanks, everyone, and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.